This morning, John 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This passage contains really one of the most outrageous claims of the deity of Jesus Christ. There's no shortage of Bible passages that talk about the fact that Jesus is God. Everything from he knows the thoughts of man to he was with God at creation to he's the Lord of the Sabbath. But nothing is more outrageous than verses 1 and verses 18 in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. And then verse 18, no one has ever seen God but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. We've sort of set aside subtlety here. What you have here in John's prologue is what I'm gonna refer to as a Jesus sandwich. Verses one and verses 18 form the bread. Verses two through 17 are the kind of the, the meat of what's happening here, but don't be fooled by calling verses one and verses 18 the bread. This is the nutritional kind of bread, the kind your kids won't eat. What it says here is that, if you look carefully, that Jesus, in verse one, was God himself, is God, was in creation of the world, and he, the word of God, the logos of God, was God. And then in verse 18, what you have, not just that he was God, I mean, that is ridiculous enough. But in verse 18, what you have is that he is, do you notice the word there, the only God. If you're done with the Old Testament, you have learned one thing. The Old Testament teaches you one thing, that there is one God. He is our Father. And then you have in John chapter 1, verse 18, a description of a second person, different than the Father. In verse 14, he comes from the Father. In verse 18, he's what the ESV says, at the Father's side. So he's clearly not the Father. He's at the Father's side. And yet it calls this one who's at the Father's side the only God. <laughs> well, not only does it refer to Jesus as the creator, the one who was with God in the beginning, the one who was God, and the one who's at the Father's side, and the one who is the only God. But it does so in language that is intimate. And I'm gonna use the word fleshly here because I think it's almost prefiguring the incarnation here. The language that is used here, it says he's at the Father's side. If you have an old, uh, if you have the King James, for example, it'll say at the Father's bosom. What the, the Greek word there is the, the word for the place in the chest where the, the rib cages meet. Where it goes in right there. There's a, there's a word for that. That's this word. It's sometimes translated in English bosom or, or chest or here side. But side really doesn't get the job done with this, does it? I mean, this is not my side. <laughs> well, that's what we're talking about. And it says that Jesus is at the Father's side, in his bosom, on his chest, is how you would say it. And it is, believe it or not, a dining expression, a phrase used with meals, with eating. In both the Roman and the Hebrew culture, they would 
not at every meal, this is not a three times a day or even a once a day kind of thing, but at significant feasts, at holidays in the Jewish world or in the, the Roman world, at big royal feasts, extravagant feasts for, for royalty and for kings and for leaders or for wealthy people throwing a banquet, those kind of things in the Roman world, but for the Jews, more of a, a holiday kind of thing. They would often eat reclining. And you might be thinking like lazy boy recliner, American style TV tray. Not so, there's different ways they would recline. Sometimes if there was, uh, was not a backing behind where they were, which is often the case, they would sit, eat sitting on the ground, especially in the Jewish houses, they'd, they'd sit, sitting down the ground, eat sitting down the ground, they would just lay sideways like this and put their, their head on their, their fist like that as they lay down and they would eat that way. The Romans believed it was easier to digest food that way. Try that Thanksgiving, see what happens. <laughs> but what would happen to these Roman meals is that the person would, would lay down like this and the person on his right or if he laid down like this, the person on his left, he would not in turn lay down like head to foot army style. No, he would turn around and he would lay down with his head on the host's chest. So if the host is laying down this way, the person on his right would lay backwards and place his head on the host's chest. Now, if there's a backing to where they were sitting, the host would lay back like this. And then either the guy on the right or the left would lay down and put his head on his chest. And the host would even hold his head. You're laying down your friend's head is right here in your chest and you're holding it up or maybe he's resting on your arm and you have your, your hand on his head. This is a very, and I don't wanna say common, again, this is not what they did at every meal or even one meal a day, but at holidays in the Hebrew world or at formal banquets in the Greek world, this is what would happen. And it would not happen all over the room. It's not like everybody would be doing this. Some of those banquets have you know, 20 tables or you'd be sitting in a really big square, like horseshoe style is how some hotel ballrooms set them up. And in those cases, only if you were sitting next to your best friend would you sit like that. You wouldn't do this to the stranger that you happen to get seated next to. But you would lay, if you were sitting next to your best friend, you would lay your head down on him at, at that kind of event. But the person who did always do this was the person who was at the head of the table. In this kind of event, he would be at the head of the table. And so this is why it's a big deal to sit at the head of the, to be the host of the feast and to sit at his right or at his left. It's not something you dispense as a political favor. <laughs> like, hey, I need a new road project from this guy so the mayor will have that guy sit on his right or his left. No, this is beyond the line of a political favor here <laughs> because the dude's head is gonna be on your chest. <laughs> You're gonna be, in a sense, holding his head. No, this is for your closest friend. And maybe in a home, a husband and, and wife might sit like that. But where you see this reference, and there's about six or seven instances of this in the Old Testament and several in the New Testament, it's not husbands and wives, it's close friends that sit like this. In our Western world, this is very foreign to us. We don't have that kind of physical contact, especially between male friends. <laughs> Even 100 years ago, we, we used to, 100 years ago, you might see in our own country two guys even holding hands and it wouldn't be weird. It's weird today. Much of the world is still like that today. You might hold hands, but even much of the world like in Africa or India when two guys are holding hands, it doesn't mean they're best friends. It just means they're going the same way. 
But in the Roman world, in the Hebrew world, the head on your chest, it wasn't just that you happened to be sitting next to each other. It was a very close sign of friendship. In our own culture, we have some, Dieter and I have some friends and we have them over for dinner every few weeks and we're at their house every few weeks and we're close friends. And what that looks like when you're close friends with another family like that is our kids are comfortable playing together. They'll go down in the basement after dinner and play together. And maybe the wives will get up and go into the kitchen and make coffee or something and they talk in there and the, the husbands will maybe move to a couch or go sit on the, the porch together and, and talk. I mean, that's about as close of a sign of intimate friendship you get in our culture. The kids are playing together. <laughs> the dads are on the porch. But in this world, it's the head laid back on the chest. One commentator says this is not just a sign of friendship, but it demonstrates an aura of intimacy, of closeness, the closest possible friendly relationship two people can have. Again, we don't have anything like that in our world. You see some instances of this in the New Testament. Luke 16, for example, verse 23, is the story of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man is, is suffering torment and he looks across the the gulf and what does he see lo and behold there is Lazarus laying on Abraham's chest (laughs) and of course you've got the weird cults that say you know take the Abraham's bosom and make it a place I mean talk about missing the point it's not a place called Abraham's bosom are you kidding me what he sees is it's because those people haven't listened to the last 10 minutes of the sermon (laughs) What they see when they see Lazarus laying down on Abraham's bosom is this relationship. I mean, Lazarus, dogs were licking him in this world. Nobody, if you touched Lazarus, you were unclean. And what do you get in the next world? He is sitting with his head on Abraham's chest. (laughs) What an image of friendship. That's how well they knew each other. Don't forget that in John 13, John himself at the Last Supper laid down on Jesus' chest. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. So you've got the image of the dining hall. You've got the image of the, the two best friends, one with his head on the other's chest. You've got that image in your mind. Do you understand that is the word that is used in verse 18 for Jesus, and it's in the ESV, was at the Father's side. If you look at the footnote, it was at the Father's bosom. That's what this means. That's what I mean by this is so outrageous. We've set subtlety aside here. What John is saying is that before creation, Jesus was reclining on the Father's chest. Leon Morris writes, quote, this shows that Christ has the closest possible relationship imaginable to the Father. Well, great. The father and Jesus have a great relationship. After all, he's a father-son relationship. What's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal is the first part of verse 18, that no one has seen God. What a contrast. And obviously, it's a reference to Exodus 33, verse 20, where there, Moses says, no one can see God and live. No one can see me and live, Yahweh declares. It's repeated here in John 1.18, no one can see God. So 
everybody is in this category that you cannot see God. And then here's Jesus with his head on God's chest. (laughs) And you might be thinking in your mind, okay, I've got American skepticism in me. There's all kinds of people that have seen God in the Old Testament, right? Moses saw God, Elijah saw God, Isaiah saw God. Okay, but think of those visions. Did any of them really see God? Like, look at his essential nature, look at his essential attributes, like really look into his face. Did anybody? Elijah has to hide in a cave (laughs) and then his seeing God is hearing the whisper. Moses is hid in a cleft as God passes by and he sees God's backside, it says. I don't know what that means, but I know it means he didn't look in his face. (laughs) Isaiah, in the year the king Uzziah died, saw the train of his robe fill the temple with glory. I mean, that's a wedding image, isn't it? I mean, that's, (laughs) did you go to a wedding? Yeah, was the bride pretty? I don't know, I saw the train of her robe. Were you outside peering through the window? (laughs) I mean, you're not gonna get a more detached view of God than here where Isaiah saw the train of his robe. That's how people have seen God before. Mediated or in theophanies like Nebuchadnezzar sees the fourth person in the furnace. That's what seeing God looks like for, for a person. And then here you get Jesus who doesn't just behold the face of God, he's reclined at the Father's chest. <laughs> There's this creation-creator divide. Everything in the world fits into one of two categories, God and not God. What category does this fit in? Jesus, who's at the Father's side, reclined on the Father's chest, is that God or not God? (laughs) And then it gives you this phrase, no one has ever seen God. Not even Moses could see God. But then Jesus, who is the only God. And that word, there's another Greek word in there, it's just dropped off in the NAS and the ESV. The word is monogonesis in Greek, which means only begotten. That's the word that's here. It's translated just only here. And the translators say because we don't use the word begotten. They don't want to use a word that you don't actually use. So they just drop the word begotten. And I guess they have a point. I mean, raise your hand if you use the word begotten this week. (laughs) But that's this word. He's the only begotten God who's at the Father's side. What begotten means is that life is is given. It's all the begots in the Old Testament. (laughs) You know, begat, begat, begat. I don't know what the plural is. I'm going with begots. This is that. That Jesus here is the only begotten God. He's in the Father's bosom. These are not reversible roles. The Father's head is not on Jesus' chest. The Father is not the image of Jesus. The Father is not the light. Not reversible. The Father is the illuminator and Jesus is the light. The Father is a speaker and Jesus is the word. The Father is the Father and Jesus is the Son. The Father is the source and Jesus is the image. These are all the New Testament examples of this image here. 
And here you have the son begotten from the father, described as the only God. (laughs) People say, where does the Bible teach the Trinity? How about here? You have the father and the son. They are not the same person. Verse 14 says the son comes from the father. Here in verse 18, the son is reclined on the father. They're not the same person. But they are the same being. They are the same essence. This is the doctrine of aseity. They have the same life. Theologians call this the doctrine of eternal generation. The notice of the father, the notion that the father gives life to the son, generates the son, but without beginning. It has always been this way. The son has always been the son. There has never been a moment where the father has not had his son reclined on his chest. What an intimate image, by the way. And it has always been that way. The language here in verse 18 is borrowed from an Old Testament description. Proverbs 8, verse 22. Speaking forward of Christ, Yahweh possessed me at the beginning of his work the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there was no depths, I was brought forth. Now, I've underlined and bolded those phrases because I want you to see them possessed and brought forth and set up. It's the same word, and it's this word that is translated in the New Testament, begat. Like ages ago. In other words, there's no start of this. So what we mean by eternal generation, the son is eternal. He, he was ne- there, if, it's, if he's the light, there was never a time the switch was off and he had to be turned on. He's always been at the father's side. He's always been brought forth from the father. It's translated different ways because how do you, this is where our minds break down. How do you describe bringing forth something that hasn't always been brought forth? It's where we're stuck. Well, it's the language that's used. There was a recent survey, 73% of American evangelicals, people who define themselves as evangelicals, strongly agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. I mean, that's heresy. So you have 73% of evangelicals that say heresy (laughs) when it comes to Jesus. It's a little bit disconcerting. And you can see how if you don't understand this correctly, you could be led to that heresy. If you see the Bible teaching that Jesus is the only begotten God or that he was set up or brought forth, you could see how that could lead you to teach this idea that Jesus was the first created being, which is wrong. So what's the balance from this? The balance is the rest of Proverbs 8, verse 27. When God established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so the waters might not transgress its command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, I was, here's the phrase in John 1.18, I was beside him. I was right there, Jesus says. So notice the contrast in the first paragraph we saw up there. Back before creation, Jesus was there. And now here in creation, he's already there. He was brought forth before things are brought forth. And then when things are being brought forth, he already exists. Do you see the difference? That's John 1 verse 1. In the beginning, the word was already there. Already there. 
there are those that say you shouldn't try to understand the Trinity because it's impossible to figure out when we get to heaven. I don't share that sentiment. I'd rather fail now. I'd rather try my hardest to get my mind around this. And I hope you would too, because then you turn back to John 1 verse 18 and see how he ties us together. No one has ever seen God, John says. But the only begotten God who's at the Father's bosom. There's this divide between us and God. We can't see him. He's not like us. This is Job's lament. How can I get to God? I wish I could get to him and plead my case, Job says, but I can't. I wish he would come to me and listen to me, but he won't. I I wish I had an advocate who could go between the two of us, an arbiter, Job 9 says. Job says, I can't find him. There's such a divide fixed. This is Abraham and the story of Abraham and Lazarus back from Luke 16 where the rich man says, let me get there or you come to me, let me do something. And Jesus says, I'm sorry. There is a gulf fixed. We do not go side to side in this. You can never see God. And then in the midst of that chasm, Jesus just bursts through it, doesn't he? Just rambos right through it. There's this divide between creature and creator, between mankind and God, and never the two will meet, and Jesus just blows through it. And comes to us, takes on human flesh. You've heard of it, you know, the sound bearer, the idea that people can't travel faster than the sound bearer, and then finally it gets broken and the boom, and now planes can fly faster than that. Or the four minute mile. Nobody will ever be able to run four minute mile. It's biologically, genetically, humanly, physiologically impossible. Then one person breaks it, and now everybody can do it. Maybe not everybody, but you know. There's this great gulf fixed and Jesus breaks through it, comes to us so much so that at the end of his ministry, he can say, hey, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And by that, he doesn't mean what's called the doctrine of of modalism taught by people like T.D. Jakes that there's the Father and then later on there's a Son and then later on there's a Spirit, but do you ever see the same two in the same place at the same time? I mean, come on, it's obviously the same person. That's not what's taught. I mean, how can you say that with this? Because here you have the son resting on the father's chest at the same time. (laughs) It's not a person here and a person there and a person there. It's three different persons. And we don't see the spirit in John 1. We'll see the spirit in John 3. We looked at that a few weeks ago. We'll see the Spirit later again at the end of John's Gospel when he describes as the Spirit coming from the Father and the Son. So John is very Trinitarian. He understands the the Spirit and the personhood of the Spirit. But right now at the beginning, he's highlighting the person of the Son, resting with his head on the Father's chest, the only begotten God from the Father, filled with grace and truth. What does Jesus do when he comes from the Father? Why does he do it? It's the last word in verse 18. It's translated in five English words. He has made him known. In Greek, it's one word. It's a word that gets transliterated in English. It's a a preacher's favorite word. It's the word exegete. And so in English, we use it to mean when you take the meaning out of something. 
You know, pastors exegete a text, they look at a text and they study it and try to find the meaning and bring the meaning out of it to deliver it. That's this word. That Jesus exegetes the Father. In other words, he is the closest relationship imaginable to the Father and he comes to the world to do what? To give meaning to the Father. Not as if the Father needs Jesus to give him his meaning, of course, but he comes to the world to reveal to expose, to, to display, to describe, to teach, to put on for everybody to see the meaning of the Father. What is he like? You look at Jesus. Calvin writes, quote, when the scripture says that none has seen God, it's not to be understood of the outward seeing of the physical eye. It means generally that since God dwells in an accessible light, he cannot be known except in Christ, his lively image. So earlier I said, nobody can see God. That's what verse 18 says. But by the end of verse 18, you realize the truth. That everyone can see God if they look at Christ. John 6, verse 46, no one has seen the Father except he who is from the Father. And of course, the verse I referenced earlier when he tells Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What does the Father look like then? It's the question we end this prologue with. What does the Father look like? Well, John lets you know in verse 14, the Father is filled with grace and filled with truth. Because Jesus is filled with grace and truth. In John chapter two, the father looks like zeal, holiness, jealous for his own name, zealous for his own glory as Jesus turns over the temples. And they remember, this is what the scripture said the savior would do. In John chapter three, the savior is filled with love and it is very explicit in John three sixteen because the father, because God so loved the world, he sent his son. And so you're looking at the person of Jesus Christ and you see that the Father must be filled with grace. The Father must be filled with truth. The Father must be filled with holiness. The Father must be filled with, with zeal and with jealousy. The Father must be filled with love. The Father must be perfect because Jesus is perfect. The Father must be sinless because Jesus is sinless. The Father must be innocent, holy, pure, and undefiled because Jesus is all of those things. But ultimately, if you bear it down to one thing, what does the father look like? He looks like a savior. The father looks like one who loves his children and will send even his own beloved son to die to rescue his children. So Jesus speaks the truth. When he says, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because in the picture of the cross, we see the saving heart of our Heavenly Father. Lord, we're thankful that you are a Savior by nature. We think in the Trinity. Between the Father and the Son, we see two persons with one nature. In the incarnation, we set our eyes on one person with two natures, human and divine. 
And that fits because in his life, we see his death and his resurrection. We see his sinlessness and we see his sin, which is, of course, our sin given to him. We see his holiness, which is, of course, our own worship to you that reveals it. And we see his defiled nature, which is our sin imputed to him. We see his innocence because he's God and we see his guilt because you condemned him for our sin. So it's fitting for us to look at him and see one person with two natures. Jesus Christ, God and man, Savior, Redeemer, and resurrected. We give you thanks for him in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.